Hey everyone, welcome in to Patterns Tell Stories. I'm your host, Klaus, and today we're going to be talking about quantum consciousness, legacy UFO programs, and the Vatican. With me today, as always, is my co-host, Garrett. How's it going, man? Good, I'm glad to be here. How are you tonight? I'm good. Uh, looking forward to getting into this stuff. There was a new uh, interview with David Grush done by ICER. They're the ones who were responsible for that San Marino uh, initiative that happened, I think, a few years ago. And I think they might still be working on it uh, with Lou Elizondo. I think it's interesting that he's giving interviews to, well, at least one of these guys uh, was involved in the research of the 1933 Italian UFO crash. That's something Grush has brought up a few times in interviews. Yeah, this was a crash that happened 14 years before Roswell where a craft apparently crashed uh, outside Magenta in northern Italy. Mussolini had a secret department that he set up to go and retrieve and study this craft. Yeah, during World War II, American forces uh, retrieved this UFO craft and brought it back to America, uh, shipped it over. I don't know if you want to read the, I guess there's a telegram that was brought to the public by by Roberto Panati, one of the guys who interviews Grush in in this new in this new video they put up um, for ICER. I think it's it's a really interesting piece of evidence. Yeah, I don't know if it's from Mussolini. I think it's to Mussolini. I'm trying to make sure. Uh, I think it's because it's from his yeah, it's from his department to uh, the press. I believe it's it's written to like one of the leading, okay. leading newspapers or got you it yeah, says, in the country. A telegram from Mussolini's director of special affairs. There you go. And it says, on the personal order of Mussolini, no mention is to be made of the alleged landing of an unknown aircraft on national soil. That is wild. Yeah. (laughs) It's basically like a gag order on the press to um, basically keep this secret. Yeah, and he didn't say a whole lot about it. In, In my opinion, he did include that this particular crash, to his understanding... There was no pilots. Did you right. get that out of that interview? Because yep. uh, that was something that really stood out to me. Was that because uh, he has been asked about like, hey, have any of these crashes had occupants or pilots? And uh, I know he threw out the term biologics, which makes me think that that's a whole other area of this whole onion in terms of that 1933 Italy. I know that there's a lot of myths around what people say was in those crashes and what shape it was all sorts of things that uh i i really didn't get a great idea of i know in that set of mussolini notes there's like handwritten drawings of craft on them yeah he said there were no bodies recovered at this at this crash site you know that doesn't specifically mean that there were no occupants just means that none were none were recovered. And I guess that's based on what the Americans found in Italy, if they did indeed take this craft and ship it back home. Italy has been surprisingly forthcoming about this topic, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, uh, compared to other countries, if you guys watch that show, uh, Unidentified, I think it's called, that History Channel show, um, the episode where they talk to that Italian commander, Claire Bruno Verduccio, is one of the most intriguing episodes of any show I've watched in the past year because he goes into detail. I know we've mentioned it in the show before, but like he goes into detail about how these things appear to like exist on a certain frequency and uh, how they're having issues with them coming out of their waters. And it had some strange connection to the ocean. And uh, they're saying that that's going on today. Imagine that area, if this is something that like happens on certain parts of our planet, it may be that Italy is close to one of those spots. And on the topic of bodies in this interview with, with these two, two guys from ICER, when he says there were no bodies recovered from the 1933 crash in Italy, he basically also says that in the American government's possession, uh, we have a number of bodies in the double digits with different morphologies and in different states. We can kind of unpack that a little bit. It's kind of crazy if we have, you know, double digit, at least 10 uh, different biologics as as he referred to them in his congressional testimony. Yeah, for those who don't know, Grush gave uh, testimony to Congress a few months ago about crash retrieval programs and, um, you know, recovered bodies. So he's just kind of expanding upon that in this interview. 
And the fact that he's saying there are different morphologies really speaks to the UFO phenomenon being several different things, it sounds like, which kind of goes along with what DeLong says about, you know, warring factions of gods. And, um, you know, we're just kind of caught in the middle of this thing. Yeah, if there are different morphologies, that means it's definitely more than one thing that has to do with these UFOs. And that could correspond, I guess, with different shapes or different behaviors or different levels of advancement with these UFOs uh, by different, I guess, races or different, you know, whatever these things are that are, you know, outside of our ontological ability to explain. The other thing he, he says is that besides different morphologies, they're in different states. I don't, I don't know, like, what kind of different states a body could be in, I guess, like, <laughs> like, uh, you know, like, it, it pieces... When you hear that, what do you think? Because I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with the story Uri Geller tells where Warner Von Braun took him into like a freezer room and showed him things in a freezer. And then there's that story of Richard Nixon and I think Jackie Gleason. I think it's a story Jackie Gleason's wife tells. Nixon and Jackie had like a close relationship on this topic. And you always hear random stories about... Philip Corso, that's another one. He's, he talks about seeing bodies. These stories, what do they have in common? And like, I, I got to be honest, is like, I don't believe a lot of those stories are 100% as accurate as they could be. Like, I feel like, uh, I don't even want to say it like that because I don't want to say any of those people are liars, but like, like Corso's book had a lot of weird changes to it. And Uri Geller is a strange fellow to follow in general. And like anytime <laughs> I hear people like tell these stories, like you see what Uri Geller posts on Twitter, bro. It's, yeah, it's um, literally bananas. Like he posts like... The he just posts pictures of bananas all the time. <laughs> <laughs> literal, literal bananas. No, but seriously, it's wild. Uh, his, uh, his Twitter feed is... Um, yeah, man, I don't know what to think about it. I just don't know what to make of these stories and like where they come from because the people that seem to want to talk about crash retreat, like Richard Nixon, is that a great source? In my opinion, no. <laughs> All right. Next one, Uri Geller, who's posting pictures of him. He, he posts videos of him, like trying to subliminally influence world leaders. And he'll be like pointing his hands at a screen and he's like, I'm focusing my energy to stop this from, and like, all right, next. And then I go to the next one. And what was the third, the third one we hear? I'm just imagining like Stephen Greenstreet going after Richard Nixon for being a believer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I know what you mean. It's tough um, with some of these sources, but when you have someone standing before Congress, like David Grush and saying this kind of thing, uh, and then kind of elaborating on it a little bit later, it's really hard to uh, dismiss it. It's a lot harder to dismiss it, in my opinion, because I always had a, a rough time, you know, thinking about like bodies. I always thought that it had to be some sort of you know, biological robot or um, I mean, we're all kind of biological robots, but you know what I mean? Like um, some sort of artificial tissues and and something like that, like some super advanced, maybe 3D, 3D printed, um, you know what I mean? Like I never really had had the idea in my head that it was, we, we actually recovered some sort of biological being. I don't know, maybe that's just me uh, protecting myself from some sort of uh, paradigm shifting ideas, but the Nazca mummies too makes me wonder. They had another quote unquote hearing uh, down in Mexico on these mummies. And the thing that drives me nuts about it is that they call it a UFO hearing. And the majority of the time they're talking about these mummies they pulled out of a mine down in Peru. And uh, it's not, you know, that's not a UFO hearing that, you know, the most obvious avenue for researching these would be through kind of trying to determine whether or not they're from from Earth before we we go on the extraterrestrial path, uh, be, just because they don't share DNA or only forty percent DNA with humans doesn't mean they're not from Earth. You know, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like um, it's it's tough. So when you got Grush talking about you know actual bodies that were recovered from these crash sites, and then you got Jaime Musan down in um, Mexico fucking parading around these like. <laughs> 
paper mache, uh, you know, dusty ass fucking mummy things. It's uh, it really muddies the water. I definitely believe Grush that we got we got something. I don't know. What do you think? I I think what you're saying is a hundred percent accurate. Like, think about what made Grush's testimony so important and significant was that one, it was under oath, and two, he was a highly ranked, credible guy. The inspector general for the intelligence community was standing firmly behind him in support of him. And we know for years there's a history of obfuscation on this subject. And the things he was saying, like he he was completely, he appeared completely sincere in what he could and couldn't say that he needed in order to, he was ready to name names and it seemed like he wasn't even going to be allowed that yet. And whereas the Mexico thing was like, I thought all opposite. The Mexican thing gave me the vibes that like they had carte blanche to say and bring out whatever. I think that when the rules are relaxed like that, it becomes ripe for abuse. How do you say his name? Jaime Malsan? Is that his name? (laughs) The white haired guy? Yeah, I think it's Jaime Jaime Musan, I, I think. Jaime Musan. Okay. Well, from what I understand, that guy has not been 100% accurate in the past. And that's something that like... I, already, I would, that's putting it nicely. I, he has actually like perpetrated hoaxes in the past. So... Like yeah, straight up hoaxes? Yeah. I mean, we talked about the... Go go listen to the Alien Mummies episode. We we drill into it pretty deep. But uh yeah, I mean there's there's a list floating out around online that that shows like at least 50 hoaxes that he's been a part of uh throughout the years. So it's really tough to even consider anything about that credible when you look at the you know people involved and people are saying, you know, it's like we're we're very US centric when it comes to the UFO phenomenon. Um, which is true. There's some truth to that, but but that I don't think this is that. Like someone with a a history of of perpetrating hoaxes, just doing it again because you know, Gaia, the uh, online streaming company, sponsored all the research that went into this, and they did a documentary back in 2017. Um, yeah, I don't want, really want to get too much into that mummy, the fucking second mummy thing, but uh, yeah, it just kind of muddies the water when when Grush is talking about this very seriously in front of Congress. I think what he's talking about is not the fucking Nazca mummies. Let's just put it that way. Damn. I I genuinely didn't know that much about that guy. I just knew that people had like, a lot of people were very skeptical about him being the guy to represent what he's claiming. You know, it seems like out of anybody, they could have probably found and read the room a little bit of like what's reliable and what appears ridiculous. So... I don't know. That's that's their country. I, I all I know is like in our country, it seems like we have people giving a hell of an effort at trying to do this the right way, and right. that's something that like I'm keeping my focus on. Good luck to Mexico and whatever they discover or feel that they can like bring to the table scientifically. But from what I understand, it's it still needs a lot more research to confirm some of the claims that they're. Uh, even in the ballpark of in terms of these being something extraordinarily special. I felt like even as I listened to the translation of that hearing, it sounds like the jury is still out on a lot of these things. Like they're not peer reviewed, officially recognized as being factual yet, especially given that now we apparently have Grush, they made that amendment to where Grush can have access to a skiff, which he hadn't had, which was baloney. Now he apparently does have that access. I don't know if they've met yet or discussed these things, but like, I know that it's only a matter of time before names start being named and people can actually get a sense of direction of what things we can follow up. Like the, the, the best things about Grush to me is that, yes, he's made a lot of extraordinary claims. Now let's see what we do with those extraordinary claims and see if we can get some answers on these things. Because even if the answers no, how wonderful would it be as a public to be able to know that a story was manufactured and who's manufacturing these stories and why? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's at least you get an answer. Um, There's something so, there regardless of, right, of right. What, what it is. Like this is either the greatest psyop of all time and it's been allowed to go on for decades and decades. And there's definitely a chance that's possible, but I have a hard time believing that 
considering all the people involved and um, just the history and just to where we are today um, with all this stuff. Just a side note, the most annoying part of this whole Nazca mummy thing is it would be, I would be so interested in it if they didn't try to tie it to UFOs. If they if they'd really like didn't put it under the UFO banner and basically hijack the legitimacy that the UFO subject has gained uh, because of really, really hard work by certain people since, you know, 2017 and before that. That's just the thing that's most annoying to me is I would I would be really interested in, you know, where these mummies came from. But, you know, it's it's turned into uh, kind of a circus by trying to include it in the UFO conversation, which I don't think is uh, I don't think it's uh, it's it's right to do that, at least at this point. One of the other interesting things Grush touches on in this in this interview that I don't think has really gotten a lot of attention is he talks about the origin of the UFO cover-up and you know who was involved. I guess the idea is that it was the same personnel and corporate entities or elements, I guess is the word he used. Yeah, the same the same personnel and corporate elements that were involved in the Manhattan Project. It evolved from from that level of secrecy. I find that really interesting and a pretty good jumping off point to research um, the origin of this you know thing that's been going on for <laughs> apparently now since 1933. Mm, that's a tough one for me. The more I learn about this to speculate on, because it goes into a real root question as to like why is this being kept secret. The, from what I hear Tom DeLong say, what he says about the nature of this cover-up is that when we find out why it's been being kept secret, people are going to have so much more respect for these decisions. For someone who's very conspiratorial, what, what would be the right way to put it? Yeah, cons- conspiratorial. Conspiracy brain rot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like everybody's got got a friend who like thinks every single thing is a conspiracy yeah and it's all the deep state and it's all like some big cabal and a lot of the time when you ask those people hey what book did you read that in or like where did you where'd you get that information from i'm not gonna lie in my personal experience they usually fall flat on their face and end up just like going off about like george soros or some like (laughs) It, it never it never is a coherent argument and I'm willing to sit and listen to what people have to say but like at the same time there's so much nonsense thrown around in the like conspiracy world let's play devil's advocate and say that there was a legitimate reason to keep this a secret one of the things I heard uh Lou Elizondo say was like there's you lose the element of surprise when your enemy knows that you're there or something like that. I don't want to misquote him, bro. No, you're right. I'm it's saying, um, uh, it's basically, you know, you conduct, say there these UFOs are conducting a reconnaissance mission, right? They're right. Um, kind of scoping us out, seeing what we have. You know, they fly around our nuclear assets constantly. So if we acknowledge that we know that they're here, or just acknowledge their presence in any sort of official capacity, that'll kind of change their... MO, you know, they might behave differently and actually the, the element of surprise is gone. So now they they go into um, I guess attack mode for lack of a better term. And another interesting thing that Tom has said about that is I actually totally forgot about this specifically. Um, I know he's talked about, you know, nations kind of working together behind the scenes to, you know, develop technology or develop a kind of defense against um non-human intelligence over the years. But he actually literally said in his coast-to-coast interview, I think he did with A.J. Hartley. So Tom, in in the interview, says the SDI, which I've talked about previously on the show, Strategic Defense Initiative that went down back in the 80s. I guess the the main public-facing story was to you know, create a defense uh, for the U.S. that would completely protect from from any sort of um, intercontinental ballistic missile or any nuclear strike. Having a defense that would render nuclear war, basically deter it completely. Uh, so this is what he said. There are massive programs underground and in other places to create a global defense system. Largely, a lot of it was done in the 80s. The SDI, which is the Reagan Star Wars Defense Initiative, that was part of it. And we were doing that in collaboration with the Soviet Union. A lot of people thought we were at each other's throats, which we kind of were. 
but we were also working with them in certain parts of their government on the whole SDI system. And I think that was a lot of what led Reagan and Gorbachev to getting along and forming some kind of friendship there. So the the idea that the Star Wars program or the uh, strategic defense initiative, parts of it were engaged in cooperation with the Soviet Union during that time is is kind of shocking, honestly. <laughs> uh, he says, you know, everyone thought we were at each other's throats, but really there were parts of the government working together. Ronald Reagan and him communicating with the Soviet Union and us working together. I think back to that 1987 United Nations Ronald Reagan address where he's talking about how perhaps we need this outside universal threat to make us recognize our commonalities or something along those lines. It's similar to the impression that MacArthur gives in that West Point speech where he's talking about sinister forces from outside this planet. It makes you wonder if these guys knew a lot more. I feel like Tom DeLonge would say, yes, they did know a lot more. And uh, they were kind of dropping breadcrumbs in their own way. But it makes me wonder, like, how much has the situation changed if it has? And like, where things stand today, you know, because everything seems so crazy right now. I, I know things seemed crazy in the 70s and 80s, too. I wonder how that situation has evolved as years have went by when it comes to like where the planet stands on our defense and the situation. Yeah, you mentioned MacArthur. There was another uh, quote by Werner von Braun that was very interesting too that I haven't really heard many people talk about. Yeah, this is from one of Joseph Farrell's books where he quotes Werner von Braun. He says, um, US Project Paperclip Nazi rocket scientist. That's a good label. Uh, Werner von Braun made yet another curious statement on January 1st, 1959, alluding to some sort of quote-unquote difficulty, if not outright conflict, in outer space after an American Juno 2 rocket had been deflected from orbit. Uh, He says, we find ourselves faced by powers which are far stronger than we had hitherto assumed, and whose base is at present unknown to us. More I cannot say at present. We are now engaged in entering into closer contact with those powers. And in six to nine months' time, it may be possible to speak with more precision on the matter. So that was in 1959. Von Braun's mentor, Dr. Hermann Oberth. Do you know that name? Yes. Okay. He made even more curious statements. uh, Answering questions in 1968 about the UFO phenomenon, Dr. Oberth stated the following. Today, we cannot produce machines that fly as UFOs do. They are flying by means of artificial fields of gravity. This would explain the sudden changes of directions. This hypothesis would also explain the piling up of these disks into a cylindrical or cigar-shaped mothership upon leaving the Earth, because in this fashion, only one field of gravity would be required for all disks. They produce high-tension electric charges in order to push the air out of its path and a strong magnetic field to influence the ionized air at higher altitudes. This would explain their luminosity. Secondly, it would explain the noiselessness of UFO flight. Finally, this assumption also explains the strong electrical and magnetic effects sometimes, but not always observed in the vicinity of UFOs. Yeah, so that's some shit. (laughs) That's wild. I wonder if he got to see that 1933 shit. He had to. Right. And the interesting, the other interesting thing here is he, in 1968, this is basically what Lou Elizondo says when he talks about the different shapes of the craft and and how they're connected. Like the disc and the cylinder is basically two discs and then the triangle is three. Yeah, this is very similar to that when he he talks about um, the piling up of these disks into a cylindrical or cigar-shaped mothership upon leaving Earth. He's essentially saying something similar to where they're using the same uh, energy field or gravity field. You know, the energy between them just makes them look like a cigar rather than them being two separate disks or just one uh, object in itself. Let's say devil's advocate that, like, saucers are real. Someone is making on Earth a saucer, whether it's deep, deep programs in the U.S. or it was like deep, deep programs in Germany or Russia or China. Let's say that the Foo Fighters, which is a real popular example in World War II of UFOs, I've heard Jim Mars call that, he thought that these things were like some sort of super weapon developed by Germany 
whatever these things were, these fireballs or silver balls that were flying around, like these things, they couldn't explain them then. And we still can't explain them today. If scientists have like cracked anti-gravity, there's a timeline where they did it in the 1950s or had big breakthroughs in the 1950s. And then there's a, another world where like the Germans figured it out already. So for the timeline of, the, of you know, cr cracking anti-gravity, whether or not we have, or, you know, just having some sort of interest in it in general, there's something really interesting in Nick Cook's Hunt for Zero Point, where he compares the kind of lack of interest in anti-gravity and uh, the discovery of, of nuclear weapons or, you know, the force behind them. Uh, he says, by 1940, when it was understood that uranium bombarded with neutrons fissioned and produced more neutrons and that a multiplying chain reaction really might occur with a huge explosive force, something remarkable happened. The nuclear physics community voluntarily stopped the publication of further articles on fission and related subjects, and this, in turn, dampened the media's interest. By the time America entered the war in December 1941, you couldn't find a mention of fission. It was as if no one had ever been discussing it. The parallel with what I read in the U.S. media in the mid-1950s, culminating in all those statements in 1956 that gravity was doable with a Manhattan-style effort behind it, and then crushing silence was extraordinary. By 1960, you talked about anti-gravity, and people looked at you like you were mad. I find that really interesting, the parallel that, that Nick Cook kind of puts together between the media interest in nuclear physics and, you know, the playing down of it by the nuclear physics community. And then, um, you know, the kind of disinformation campaign uh, that went into effect that, you know, by 1960, it made you look crazy if you were talking about anti-gravity. I think that's really uh, kind of important and pertinent to, um, you know, how we look at this cover-up. When I look at something like the 33 Italian crash and how that country handled that situation, judging by this like scant amount of evidence we have in this in these uh, memorandums and telegraphs, one of the things I notice is that they immediately declare everything as secret as possible, and they demand that it gets compartmentalized. And they try their best to research it and try to get something positive out of the situation without like really showing your cards to other countries. The way it's described is like it's so powerful, you would like win every war and you would have like almost no need for conflict anymore because you're basically invisible and faster than the speed of light, you know? So like you could pretty much do whatever you please. I don't understand how, if these things have been crashing, how the phenomenon like wouldn't know that we know about it. That kind of ties in though with, uh, you know, what DeLong talks about with certain sides getting, getting help and these things being crashed on purpose. I guess uh, what comes to mind for me is that idea of Uncle Jimmy's dogs from Secret Machines. I'm not sure. I don't think we talked about it before on this podcast, but um, there's a real intense story. Uh, it's kind of like a uh, one-off chapter. In, in Secret Machines, the fiction book. It might have been a metaphor for what happened between uh, you know, all the countries in World War II when it came to um, these crash retrievals. I just kind of want to read a little bit of it just to kind of give an idea of why you know, these crafts may have been crashed potentially on purpose um, to help one side or the other. Is it the uh, thing with the terriers? Yes. Oh, dude, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should read that yeah. because I think that does pertain. It's definitely got me thinking about these crashes in a different way than, you know, their accidents or their just chance or, you know, <laughs> these fucking aliens like can't drive straight or they're like, I don't know. I remember like one person saying, um, you know, these aliens were like, they're like teenagers drunk driving. <laughs> and, uh, and they're fucking spaceships and that's why they crash. But uh, what I'm about to read makes a lot more sense, at least in my opinion. I, I hear Tom say like the reasons why they could have been crashing craft and it could be like to give each side technology just to see who was stronger, I yeah. think was the way he put it. And that's like, 
if you want to talk about somber, <laughs> Fucking, <laughs> Dude, that's, that's about as somber as it gets. Like, oh yeah. my God. <laughs> like, uh, I guess it's a CIA or, or OSS officer goes down to Argentina and tries to recruit a German rocket scientist for a project paperclip. And in this conversation, this is basically him trying to explain what's happening with a non-human intelligence and their kind of motivations for crashing the craft in in Germany. Um, and he kind of, he brings up this this analogy of his uncle Jimmy and um, his terriers on on a farm where he's trying to get rid of a rat infestation. So the CIA guy goes, um, "My point is." Our eggheads have been going over this little craft, its remote control systems, its means of propulsion, its flight characteristics, and they think that for all your skill with missiles and jets and shit, that you had help. I'm not going to say who that help came from. That's beyond my pay grade and yours too, I suspect. But I will say this. You aren't the only ones getting help. And I think you'll find that our respective helpers don't like each other very much. Let me tell you a story, you know, while you think. When I was a kid, my Uncle Jimmy had a bit of a farm in New Jersey. Beautiful place. I used to visit and play in the fields. It was another world to me. I was a city kid. But one of those things they had on the farm, we also had in the city. Big rats. Now, my Uncle Jimmy hated rats. They got into the produce and the animal feed, spread disease, destroyed over half the produce of a cornfield once, and contaminated what they didn't eat. Can't have that. So my Uncle Jimmy, he finds where they live. There were burrows, complexes of little tunnels in the bank of a creek that irrigated the land. Uncle Jimmy brings in 12 Yorkshire Terriers. You know the ones? Little dogs, cute but fierce, pound for pound. Anyway, Uncle Jimmy sets them on the rats. They're little, so they can get into the burrows and chase the rats down. Of course, as soon as the rats realize what's going on, they start popping out of the emergency holes like the place is on fire. And Uncle Jimmy and me are ready with the spades, smacking them on the heads as they come up. Pop, 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 just like that. And the terriers come out, blood in their mouths, dragging the dead rats out, crazed by the taste of it, so that as soon as they have pulled one out, they dove back in for more. 87 rats we killed that day. Counted them myself. When we were done, my Uncle Jimmy turns the spade on the terriers. No nonsense. Pop, 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 just like he had done with the rats. Well, I was just a kid. I cried. I begged him not to kill them. But he said, work's done. Don't need them no more. And that was that. I ran away while he did it, but he never apologized, never explained. To him, you see, the terriers were just tools, like the spade. He brought them in to get rid of the rats, and once the rats were gone, he had no use for them. Then the German engineer goes, I don't understand. You think I'm a rat? No. Or if you are, so am I. I think you and me, all of us in this world, are either rats or terriers, victims or hunters. And we fight tooth and nail because being a rat means that the terriers are the enemy and being a terrier means that the rats are the enemy. But here's the thing. Even if we're not the rats, we're still just tools. We're rats or terriers, but we're not the farmer. We kill the rats and we think we'll be rewarded or something. But then along comes Uncle Jimmy and we're just tools. And when we're done, the spade is waiting for us. You had help. But you only got that help because Uncle Jimmy wanted to put the terriers to the throats of the rats. And what if I come with you? You'll still be a dog. But maybe, just maybe, when the farmer comes back with his spade, when he figures out we've helped all we can and he has no further use for us, he'll find that what he thought was a terrier was actually a puppy, a baby version of something much bigger, a wolfhound maybe, a mastiff. And while Uncle Jimmy wasn't looking, that puppy has grown up. Maybe that hound will never be big and mean enough to take the spade away, but you never know. He might have a fighting chance. And then the, uh, the, the German engineer goes, give me five minutes to pack. <laughs> so that's a kind of a terrifying idea. You know, they're trying to set the terriers at the throat of the rats uh, just to use them in that way. And then once the rats are taken care of, they'll just take out the terriers or you know they have no use for for them anymore i guess the i guess the point is that if they help the you know the germans with this crash craft they were trying to you know give them a tool like uh and make them you know the terriers use using them as a tool to um yeah i don't know kind of kind of play sides against each other as they as they carried out their own specific agenda to what they wanted to do and they were pretty indifferent to you know, whoever was winning. 
as long as they got what they wanted out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a hell of a story because the way they frame it is like, okay, you can be a terrier or you can be a rat, but either way, the farmer's going to show up Yep, and you're going to have to deal with that. And then he like gives that last little glimmer, I guess you'd say of hope. And he says like, well, if that dog has shown that maybe it was more of a puppy that grows into something like a wolfhound, then maybe he's got a shot. Maybe when those first initial crashes happened, we were a puppy. And the past 70, 80 years have been us trying to figure out how to not be seen as this defenseless entity. Maybe like collectively, I hope those stories are true, man. Because like when you (laughs) listen to like, (laughs) God damn, when you listen to people talk about like the outlook of the future, a lot of people are just real grim right now. I know it's a strange and like dark story, but I still think that's a real hopeful story if we're going to equate it to the situation humans are in with potentially crafts crashing around the world for a multitude of reasons. But if one of those reasons is to see what who's stronger. I, I tweeted, you know, what if um, these craft are crashing to, you know, it's kind of a test to see if we can work together to kind of reverse engineer them. And that, that I think is the idea that Elizondo had with like the worldwide um, kind of Manhattan project. Then Tom quote tweeted me and said exactly that. <laughs> like, what if they're trying to figure out how, who's stronger? I'm like, fuck. <laughs> oh God. It's so intense and uh, super um, not fun to think about. Yeah. That, that kind of idea that if we grew up and weren't a puppy anymore and kind of were, you know, grew into some sort of giant dog that would have a fighting chance against the farmer. I think that that's an analogy for us, like successfully reverse engineering these crafts. So we have something to fight back with. It's a really fucking crazy story and uh, <laughs> a little upsetting. And I'm sorry about that. But uh, I think it's important. It's an important way to look at this. And it really jives with what Grush has been saying. And even Gary Nolan was saying how, you know, these are, these could be multiple things that are in conflict with each other for whatever reason, uh, you know, mankind is the battlefield. It's a proxy war. It's it's the proxy war idea. Yeah, and then we can even link that back to last week when we are talking about the Greek gods. If this really is a conflict between the Greek gods or the gods, quote unquote, think back to that story of Prometheus, the creator of mankind, giving mankind fire. And the idea of like, the gods giving man technology, which is what I equate that story as is like, that's one of the things human beings using tools. Um, I think they start seeing arrowheads around 70,000 years ago. And that tells me that like, they probably started using like some sorts of like range weaponry around that time too. You know what I mean? And our ancestors, the idea of like giving them, giving mankind fire is very similar to like giving them technology. And in that story, Prometheus gets punished and Zeus chains him to a rock and has an eagle eat out his liver every day. And because he's an immortal Titan, his liver regenerates every night. Like learning that story makes me think like, was Prometheus a terrier? I think Lavenda and Tom DeLong put a picture or a painting of that story at the end of Secret Machines, man. No, no, that's that's why I thought of that is because I know Tom went on Linda Moulton Howe. That was the first time I really heard him say that like there are good gods and there are bad gods. And she asked him about the Greek gods and like if World War II was like an ET war is the way she phrased it. And I was like, what the fuck? And then <laughs> um, when I listened to, when I was reading more about like Greek mythology, um, that comes up in gods because Lavenda and Tom do the nonfiction trilogy and then Hartley and DeLong do the fiction trilogy. The story you were just reading of was the Hartley trilogy and the Lavenda trilogy, the nonfiction, the, this is what it says about Prometheus. This is a painting from 1623 by Dick Van Boburen depicting Prometheus being chained Notice the presence of Mercury with his caudicus, the twin serpents around a central shaft. This motif will be investigated in greater detail in book three. 
Prometheus is being chained because he committed the sin of bringing the gift of fire to humanity. He will be chained to a rock, his liver eaten out of him by an eagle every day, which will grow back at night, only to be eaten again the next day until he is rescued by Heracles. The juxtaposition of Mercury, the messenger of the gods, with the imprisonment of Prometheus is very revealing, as we will see. That's really fascinating. And in the picture, um, and we'll retweet it when we put this episode out, Mercury is Hermes. We've talked about Mercury before and how he's an Olympian god. And like, there's all sorts of opinions on Mercury and the role he plays. But Prometheus is a titan, and that's the the sons of the primordial gods. And he's a generation before Hermes. And Hermes, something interesting about Hermes is that he's able to cross between the underworld and then the physical world. Like he's both spiritual and physical. Um, and that's real unique to him because he has no repercussion between crossing over from one world to the other. And he's just watching Prometheus being like brutally chained while he's like, observing in the like corner of the picture and he looks like almost happy it's interesting that the messenger of the gods is also like considered the trickster that's a real interesting part of this when we talk about the idea of what a trickster is a lot of these things if you think you're being tricked by somebody that is definitely a matter of perspective i've i've met a lot of clever people that they don't think that way just because the way they're wired they see these types of things as tests. I don't know, somebody who's been hurt a lot in the past, I feel like when you present them a challenge that is really difficult for them to conceptualize, they'll think that you're trying to trick them because they've been tricked in the past. Whereas somebody who maybe doesn't carry that same experience isn't going to have that perspective when you challenge them. Their perspective might be open enough to understand that maybe it's just a test. And that's why I feel like a lot of like, I don't know. I feel like I'm sounding like an Earth Day guy right now. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I feel like uh, it's a matter of our perspective. I think one of the reasons why they didn't want to disclose shit 50 years ago is because if you would have told someone 50 years ago, after going through the horrors of World War II and the horrors of Vietnam and the Cold War and all these like, People have been so stretched thin for so long. And I feel like this could have been something that's just like, oh my goodness. Like, you know what I mean? Like people are really worn thin with the stresses of their lives and trying to like understand their world. And I think that like uh, this one thing that could be something that was adding to the secrecy was they thought that people really just like collectively would just collapse under all that pressure. But I think, the way kids in our generation and younger have grown up, their ideas towards these things are way more open, almost too open. It's a little concerning. <laughs> I think that, like, <laughs> I think that collectively disclosure would be helpful because it would give us like a breath of fresh air and some new information to work with and launch. It'd be a good launching point, I should say. There's so much uncertainty in the world right now. And um, just to have some sort of kind of anchor, some sort of common realization to kind of rally around or uh, that that would make us feel a little more, um, you know, comfortable in our humanity uh, together, I think would be very good, like a very um, positive thing. Even if it comes with some pretty bad news, I think, uh, I don't think the news could get much worse (laughs) at this point. So, you know, if there's a way to hone in things and make them a little more uh, tangible, you know, bring us all together in the process. I think it it would be very beneficial. You know, the sooner I think we start working together as as a species, I think uh, the better chance we have of overcoming whatever whatever this is that Tom's alluding to and the and secret machines and just in general like the problems of of the world like climate change and uh, just stuff like that, that that's just threatening to kind of tear us apart at this point. I don't know. I think that would be uh, definitely a net benefit to to kind of come together over something like this. I find it interesting, that whole idea of, of you know, using 
whatever consciousness is to to fly this craft. The thing that makes the most sense to go to when it comes to this stuff, and it also you know comes from slide slide nine, the the ATIP uh, presentation. You know, it came from Christopher Mellon's website where it's talking about you know the whole the whole idea or the whole theme of the, those slides in that presentation are quantum physics uh, becoming reality. So when you talk about you know flying these crafts with consciousness, it makes sense to go into you know kind of quantum theories of of consciousness, like like uh, Penrose and Hameroff and that kind of thing. One of the interesting things I found in my research is um, this white paper. It's called uh, white paper on brain disorder phenomenology using non-invasive brain analysis. I'm not sure if we talked about this, but it was uh, it was presented by Sandia National Laboratories, their low observable projects department. And it's essentially about being able to analyze the brain using this uh, thin film squid magnetic sensor, which is, is short for a superconducting quantum interference device. This device is basically a thousand different sensors that track brain information. The partners in, in the study were IBM and uh, TRW, which is really interesting because TRW is known for their involvement with back engineering these, these kind of craft. There was an article put out by uh, this guy on Twitter. He's anonymous, but he's proven that he's some sort of a high-level aerospace executive. And he put together a fictionalized version of the history of these legacy programs, you know, kind of in the vein of, of secret machines, but uh, his is a lot more uh, specific. What he says in his fictional quote-unquote article here is that in the early years of this cover-up, you know, there were 12 trustees, which I guess is a reference to MJ-12, that were put together to keep the secret and smuggled out of the Manhattan Project uh, under a you know higher level of secrecy. And he called it Project Worrell, which I guess is the name for the, you know, the legacy program. He basically goes on to say it was organized under three directorates, hardware, organics, and intelligence. And um, the hardware directorate was responsible for all the physical parts of the craft, you know, everything that was brought to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And then he talks about the private industry. He says private industry was also involved on a smaller scale. Nearly all the electronic components were passed on to Bell Laboratories, who has the most expertise of anyone in the world at the time. They were tasked with reverse engineering the components and finding military and civilian applications. And one of the intact craft, a cigar-shaped object that confounded the scientists Wright-Patterson, was transferred to the Ramo Woldridge Corporation, which became TRW. To compartmentalize the technologies, TRW created a division called Space Technology Laboratories to explore the disk and other advanced concepts. The Aerospace Corporation was spun off from TRW as an independent nonprofit with nearly half of STL's employees and an intact flying cigar. Yeah, TRW is kind of known to be super involved in these reverse engineering programs. They were connected through the Wilson Davis notes. So yeah, TRW is involved in this squid project with IBM. This paper basically goes on to talk about how they're doing all this for, you know, to help solve, you know, brain disorders and, and that kind of thing. This is something Gary Nolan has kind of talked about. He wants to write a paper on remote viewing and you know, kind of experiencers and the caudate patamen and all that kind of thing. But he has to do the basic analysis first that would lead him there. So he's doing studies now on autism and schizophrenia and their connections to certain parts of the brain, you know, doing the preliminary work to set up a kind of foundation to do the more maybe out there work with psi and remote viewing and that kind of thing. So if he finds connections on a on a basic level in mainstream science, uh, it gives him basically the building blocks to do that more out there research. In terms of this kind of stuff, like this paper on uh, non-invasive you know, brain analysis, I think it might be similar to that, to where they're laying out you know, the basic mainstream science applications for this for the study and for these different things to maybe do something more out there. The applications they go through are epilepsy, uh, stroke, psychiatric disorders, head trauma. And then they go into uh, basic neurological science problems, which is cognitive neuroscience, lie detection, and I think which is the main 
point of this, at least eventually, is man-machine interface. Uh, and the paper goes, among the potential commercial military applications of an advanced MEG system is the assessment of human mental performance under conditions of high workload. These measurements may lead to improved design of the man-machine interface by more effectively conveying essential information to the brain such that the mental work is reduced. A more speculative but somewhat related application is the possibility that an MEG array focused by advanced signal processing or adaptive beam forming to a specific brain site could be used to control a machine by direct mental activity alone. This could lead to an entirely new interface between man and machine. Another commercial military application could be screening personnel for exceptionally demanding jobs. Some individuals are clearly better suited for some mentally stressful tasks, such as piloting a fighter aircraft in combat conditions, than others. A reliable early test can save significant money spent on candidates who are unable to complete the final stages of their training due to latent inability to meet the demands of the job. Screening personnel for high security positions could also be an application of military importance. <laughs> That's the final application in their paper that could be potentially used for a man-machine interface, which is kind of the same thing or similar to, at least what sounds like, uh, you know, flying these craft with, with consciousness. And I find it very interesting as well that they would use this for fighter pilot to determine if they, they would even be suitable to be a, to be a fighter pilot and you know fly one of those multi-million dollar aircrafts it it really goes back to secret machines too where they're screening these you know specially gifted people like the allen character and the you know the fiction books you know maybe they would be able to uh, measure intuition while they're screening these candidates i it's going to sound corny but i'm all i'm thinking about is that part in chains of the sea where the computers are talking to each other while the humans are like trying to figure out what's going on on their level. Yeah. <laughs> the computers are making like thousands of years worth of analysis and scenarios. And you know what I mean? Like all those split seconds are so valuable when it comes to the world literally being like at the string. It makes sense to me that they go through the, these rigorous, rigorous channels to make sure they have the right people to do this. Bro, the B2 plane is two billion dollars a plane so like that and and so like think <laughs> about how much could be at stake when they're trying to make these split second decisions and like where they want to put their money towards is like yeah i i feel like reading people's minds is almost like you have to aim towards that because that's as close as you can get to decision making as like straight from the source as possible. Man, when they say that these things fly with consciousness, that idea is still so like uh, hard to wrap my head around. Isn't there a part of Secret Machines where he talks about flying a craft like that and feeling like... Yeah, so the difference is the reverse engineered craft are flown with like regular system controls that I guess there's like a rolling ball on the main center console that you know you use to to navigate but but the actual like disc itself that that was made by nhi or non-human intelligence that one is flown with consciousness and no one else could do it except for that character so i feel like this kind of test that they would want to run here might have to do with finding someone who could fly you know a non-human craft and it, the other weird part about this whole thing is that this paper was put together by the low observable uh, department at Sandia Labs. Like, why would the department who's responsible for low observability, which is like hiding planes from radar and yeah, making them less detectable, like why would that department be in charge of this kind of thing? So in Sinister Forces Book 3, The Manson Secret, um, Peter Lavenda talks about how Sandia appeared to be interested in like gifted children. I'm seeing the weird, we talked about that Scott Andrews guy and like how, uh, I have no idea. This is my speculation. I have no idea who that guy is or what he, his like military career was like, but I wonder if it takes like a special kind of pilot that they vet since childhood to fly those planes or if those types of programs are for different applications. I don't know what to make of them. I don't know if it's all like stranger things, you know, like the, I, when we like to speculate, of course, we'll start jumping to that. But like, I don't know what those programs were for, or what they found. I'd be real curious to like 
read that guy's book for one to see like what he says and how he describes it. That's a real mysterious part of all this. Do you know anything about anything more about how they select the types of pilots that get to fly those craft? Well, yeah. So Diana Pasolka's new book just came out and one of her colleagues, she's the best. Yeah. One of her colleagues is um, pretty sure that her parents were in the secret space program, whatever that means, and that she was being analyzed for it. So I'll read a little bit of that because that is definitely applicable (laughs) to this shit. Did you ever douse when you were a little kid? What? You know what I'm talking about? where where, Where you hold the rod and like try to find water or stuff underneath the ground. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I but, do know what you're talking about. I've read a lot about it, but I've never did, tried it. That was a dude, thing when you were. I just, I distinctly remember going on a field trip. No way. I'm dead ass, bro. And we went to a little farm, and this lady handed us all little rods, and we walked around like dummies oh trying to like find water. But like the back of my head, and that might have just been a fun little activity because like in the South, they. They do that type of stuff. John Alexander talks about it in Jeffrey Mishlove interviews. Is like when they were finding or trying to find people with psychic ability, it seemed like some of these things were just part. There's people that swear up and down dousing works and that it is like a whole thing that it's a process that you can train yourself to learn. But that's besides the point. I, I was laughing as I'm reading these types of books in my head is like, imagine the kid that actually is finding whatever <laughs> water there is and they like nudge the lady they're like he's the one and oh, then, dude like and then, <laughs> then that kid just gets pulled into a truck and that's now what he's i'm like, saying like <laughs> i'm just speculation i don't that, that's my crazy mind imagining a scenario but i do distinctly remember for dousing oh <laughs> i my remember God. doing that as a little kid and when i read those stories now i'm like Yo, that's funny. I wonder, they had to have been like going in classrooms or doing tests unbeknownst to people. Because like, I would hear them calling into like coast to coast and occasionally a person will ask like, hey, my dad had a weird experience when he was in school. And like, it sounds like there were all sorts of weird ways they would go about finding people with these weird abilities. But go ahead to what you were going to read. That was just a little side story as I was thinking of that. Because that, that, uh, that's nuts to think laugh. like there's just these like fly trap field trips for like kids to like <laughs> recruit them for dowsing. This is from an interview that Diana did with her colleague where they, she talks about like her childhood, the signs that that her parents worked in the secret space program. Um, so Pasolka or someone in the Pasolka's book? Pasolka's colleague. Oh, okay. Who she works with, um, who's like super credentialed and like, wouldn't like would not make the shit up it's so crazy when like super serious people talk about this stuff and it's they have no reason to make it up they have no benefit to gain from making up something like this and no one really takes it seriously because it just sounds so out there but there's like you know really credible people saying this stuff okay and just to be clear you're reading from Diana Pasolka's new book called Encounters Experiences with Non-Human Intelligences Explorations with UFOs, dreams, angels, AI, and other dimensions. Yep. That's Hell yeah. I haven't read it yet, but I want to hear what's in it. All right. So she says, uh, when I was in third grade, I was taken out of class for two or three days and given a series of tests. The consequence of this testing is that my parents were given the opportunity to enroll me in an EAP program, uh, which is a program for kids whose IQ was 140 or better. EAP involves skipping the fourth, fifth, and sixth grades and curriculum and completing elementary school in two years with bonuses. The bonuses were hands-on science training with planned experiments, foreign language education, audiovisual equipment at our disposal, and possibly others. We watched a great many film strips and movies presumably made in the Soviet Union, some of which were propaganda about USSR five-year programs. We were meant to enjoy seeing through the lies told there. For example, Soviets invented the tractor and electric train. My favorite was a film about Roman Vishniak, the microbiologist, which inspired me to become a biologist too. We were segregated from all the other kids in the school, even eating lunch away from others in our own isolated cafeteria period. 
By the end of the program, I was making friends with regular sixth graders on the playground who called us the eggheads. We were tested again every month or so for two years. It's easier to see now how we were data in some hypothesis about our progress. Most of the kids did not continue in the honors track in junior high, though I did. There were 15 girls and five boys in our class. And then Diana asks, she asks the real question here. There is a belief among many people that there is a breakaway civilization and that involves space. Do you have any thoughts about this belief? And uh, her colleague goes, in the period in which I knew my dad, the extinction events that were thought most likely to occur were overpopulation and nuclear war, overpopulation being the most urgent among the people I knew. However, the three-mile limit attests to the fact that the Soviets in all their forms were considered a threat. My dad had some very quirky friends, masons, pilots, engineers, astronauts, who had hidey corners in the parts of the tri-state area, is all I can say. Breakaway was never mentioned, though I do wonder where all the money went that was in the dozens of bank accounts that were empty after being very full that I found in my mother's possessions after she died. And they never acted as if a long future in any one location was assumed or expected. Home for both my parents was temporary and forgettable, neither of whom would say anything whatsoever about where they had grown up or anywhere they had lived until we moved into our house on Long Island. My mother, in fact, denied that there were any photographs of our family. This was a lie, as I later discovered, but to what end, I haven't even a slight guess. It's as if our lives were being erased, even as we lived them. I love how Dan is just like, is there a breakaway civilization? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking awesome. Yeah, man, that's sick. I'm excited to read that book now. Yeah, it's good. It's kind of scary, though. Like, there's, um, yeah, the whole secret space program is so fucking weird. I, a lot of these things, Richard Dolan talks about a breakaway civilization, Joseph Farrell, Peter Lavenda indi- talks about it. I wonder like what parts of these claims are true and what isn't. It's interesting to me because like that kind of relates to like what that Condor man was posting. One of the things he says in this article, and I know, take it with a grain of salt, it's not supposed to be 100% ironclad, but the way it was written was really compelling. And this guy's post, he made it sound like when we were having all that crazy shit happen with the Chinese balloon, the thing that was shot down over Alaska, and this is speculation, but it could have been something that Biden didn't even know it fucking existed, but still us, if that makes sense. And uh, hold on, I'll read you the, the line I'm talking about. Well, that was literally what I said. (laughs) <laughs> I said it was a bootleg Tic Tac. Got you. Fuck. Sorry, bro. <laughs> no, oh, no, funny. no. Oh, I thought you meant just now in the podcast, not no, in the tweet. No, I, I was like, dude, was I don't... Guess. <laughs> yeah, that was you. You did guess that. And fucking... God damn. What does that even mean? Because the thing was, that was the, the thing I was asking you. was like, I, I was like, dude, it's from what Commander Dave Fravor said, they had no shot at engaging the tic-tac because I feel like that was probably an authentic whatever it was, whatever this thing was over Alaska. Okay, here we go. Dozens of whistleblowers came forward to the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community with details of recovered craft and reverse engineering programs. And one of the final blows to the program came on February 10th, 2023, during the frenzy of the Chinese spy balloon as an F-22 intercepted and brought down a cylindrical silver object that was traveling at 35 to 40 knots at an altitude of 40,000 feet over Alaska. Both had been shot down. The Biden administration was not yet aware of the program and realized how much in the dark they were after they recovered the craft's remnants. President Biden immediately appointed a UAP task force chaired by Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, to uncover what was going on and act accordingly. At the time of this writing, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, in partnership with Jake Sullivan, was attempting to pass legislation to lift the veil from Project Athena and return all recovered craft materials and intellectual property to the U.S. government. So that blurb to me makes me think that like a big part of what disclosure might be is like what I know we've said a lot of stuff, but one of the things we were saying from the beginning is that whatever these programs are, 
may be operating without congressional oversight. And that is sketch as fuck because there's a chance that people that we're electing to like protect us don't even understand what's flying around. I don't know. It just seemed very serious and very like, I didn't know what to make of that part of this story. It just was something that I really wanted more information about. Everything in that article makes sense, even though it's like a fictionalized version. It really ties things together in a way I hadn't thought about before. I wonder what that thing was doing in Alaska. You know, <laughs> like, Fucking do you think chilling, it was just dude. like testing it or like? Uh, yeah, probably. Well, I, what I think happened was like they fucking um, turned off those filters, right? On the uh, whatever those uh, phased array radars are. Yeah, once they shut off those filters, shit just popped up everywhere. And one of those things happened to be, you know, some sort of a cylindrical object that that belonged to, you know, a sap that that wasn't reported. I think that's what um, Condor Man's talking about in this. That's wild. Because I remember when that came out about the Alaskan craft, whatever it was, because you got really scattered in small amounts of information about that through the news. But one of the things they said was, they didn't have an identifiable form of propulsion. Yeah, man. Um, I think I think we're good. I think we covered a lot. This is a very UFO-centric episode, so kind of back to our roots. But um, you got anything coming up that you want to plug? I also wanted to thank people that have signed on to that Discord and have been asking us questions and talking to us. It's been super cool and really supportive and yeah, I just like want to encourage anyone if you guys have questions about where we're reading some of this stuff or uh, stuff we're even reading in the moment or learning about in the moment or stuff you're learning about in the moment that you feel like would really like show us a lot of stuff, send it over because um, I really like the communication with people. It's been super positive and just wanted to thank all you guys for supporting the show and uh, showing so much interest and something that like I really feel like is an issue that gets overlooked a lot. Yeah. I just wanted to thank you guys for supporting the show. Yeah. And, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. If you want to, yeah, it's over um, on our Patreon, you get access to the discord. So that's uh it's been pretty rad so far. Uh, so if you want to go over to that, patreon.com slash patterns, tell stories, it's a little perk, I guess we get, you can um, hang out with us in the discord. But uh, I just put out an article, should be free in a few days, but I went through uh, you know, some of my research and tried to pin down the actual real world version of the Maynard Consortium from uh, Secret Machines. So uh, I think I got some of that uh, figured out. At least, you know, there's a lot of correlations in, in my research to, you know, what they describe in, in the Secret Machines books about about that conglomerate that uh, kind of runs in the background and, you know, has their own intelligence service and yeah, that kind of thing. So I think I, I made some, I matched some stuff up and maybe some of the mechanisms that go, go along with, you know, how they fund uh, these things and how that money moves around. So uh, it's a cool one. It's called black gold, the real consortium. It's a part of my black gold series. So uh, check that out. And uh, in a couple of days, it'll be it'll be available to everyone. And that's all I got. So uh, yeah, until next week. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you then. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.